Francesca Stavrakopoulou is Professor of Biblical Studies at Exeter University. She talked to Michael Barclay about her research. We hear her first talking about her partner, Andy, who's in the Royal Marines. He was in the Marines, wasn't he, and served in Afghanistan and certainly hasn't had an easy time since. Mm, no, and and a, a huge number of, of people haven't. Uh, he's still in the Royal Marines and um, I'm looking forward to the day that he leaves. Um, but, yeah, it's a strange thing. I, I first moved to Exeter, gosh, in 2005 and one of the things that I was warned about was that, you know, avoid the Royal Marines because uh, the Southwest is very much Royal Marine country. And I said, oh, no way would I date a Marine. Um, and uh, funnily enough, I've, I've, I've ended up um, with one. <laughs> <laughs> and I've learned all sorts of things um, about my own prejudices, about the military and about um, my own views about war and violence, um, how complex these things are and how deeply um, complex, quite often, the the people who join the armed forces are. And one of the pieces we're going to hear, um, Elgar's Nimrod, is often played on Remembrance Sunday, obviously. And so the associations I have with this piece of music is... They're, they're very hard. Andy's lost friends, close friends, in Afghanistan, but he's also lost close friends as a result of suicide from PTSD and other related mental health injuries. I mean, a huge amount of people have killed themselves uh, that he knows, and um, it's devastating. Oh, gosh, sorry. Um, And so you hear this piece on Remembrance Sunday, and you're not just thinking about um, the traditional, very sort of stiff upper lip kind of context in which we're used to, to seeing the ceremonial um you're actually thinking about all the people that are still dying civilian and military as a result of war and then yeah one week um again i think it was probably a kitchen night this particular performance popped up and it was remarkable and it changed the way i feel about this piece in so many ways it was played in Ramallah, I think, in 2004, 2005, and it, it's just an incredible performance. Well, here's the West Eastern Divan Orchestra, which combines young Israeli and Arab musicians, recorded live at the Cultural Palace in the West Bank city of Ramallah on the 21st of August, 2005.
Daniel Barenboim conducting the West Eastern Divan Orchestra in Nimrod from Elgar's Enigma Variations, a live performance from Ramallah in 2005. Even without the associations that come uh, to one from that music on Remembrance Day, for example, uh, it's a very moving piece. But it must be particularly moving for people like you, Francesca, who have these connections and army funerals in mind. Uh, it must be very emotional listening. Yeah, it is. I think you're probably hearing my voice. Mm. Um, I always mm. struggle to listen to that one. Um, but it's important, though, isn't it, to allow music to take you to places that, you know, sometimes, quite often, you try to ignore or you sort of try to push to the, to the corner um, just to be able to get on with life. I came across this and loved it. And one of the things I love most about this is that ancient Hebrew is a remarkable thing, but one of the most important things about ancient religious texts, the biblical text written in Hebrew, is that you get these little glimpses of power words. And it's not just about what a word means, but it's about the way it sounds. It's about the, the, the shape that your mouth makes when you when you sing or chant or say these words. And you get a real sense of this, I think, in, in this piece. And what's particularly important is that these are women singing these psalms. And it's just excerpts of different psalms that they're singing that, that, that Steve Reich has kind of put together. But it's female voices. And that's quite unusual because, um, like Christianity, I think singing the psalms, any kind of psalmody, very quickly in Judaism became very male-dominated in a kind of formal religious context. And so I like this because it's women singing and women would have been important musical performers in the ancient world in which these psalms were originally recited or chanted or encanted or, or sung. You know, we don't know exactly how they were used, but women would have been important musical performers um, in that cultural context. That's why I particularly like this. Well, psalms literally translated means praises, doesn't it? Yeah, and it literally, I mean, it is, it's... It's the same as a hallelujah is, is mm. literally, you know, praise Yah, praise Yahweh. The word tehillim, psalms, means sort of praises, which is exactly what the, the, the book of Psalms does. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. And um, Well, the nightly revealing of knowledge is a good thing to hope for, uh, for any scholar. Um, and a nice note on which to say, uh, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.
Stefan Asbury conducting the Los Angeles Philharmonic and Synergy Vocals in music from Tehelim by Steve Reich. The final choice of my guest on Private Passions today, Francesca Stavrakopoulou.
has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 122. It's followed by Deo Gracias, composed by Johannes Ockergem, sung by the Huelgas Ensemble, conducted by Paul Van Nevel. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls, and prosperity 
within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good.
Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God Spots, and today he talks about building funds. I was abroad once, and like a good little boy, I went to church. Guess what? I didn't understand one word of the service. But one thing I did understand as I sat there in this enormous cathedral was a huge board showing the Restoration Fund target. They were looking for about a million squiddly diddlies. And every city has a couple of cathedrals all looking for the same kind of dosh. So I thought, this really is a beautiful building. I'm sure God loves it, but I'm sure he could live without it. Now, if I had a million quid to give away, (laughs) as I so often do... Would I give it to a restoration fund? Or would I give it to help the starving? And which would make God happier? Oh, I know Jesus did say the poor you will always have with you. But then, maybe he said that because he knew how little I'd end up giving.
Mary Haddow is Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today she has a special talk for Remembrance Sunday. I wonder if many of you have seen the film Saving Private Ryan. In its opening scene, which lasts for about 20 minutes, it's a graphic account of war. For 20 unrelenting minutes, you are shown with close camera work, ordinary men, in the first landing crafts. They're arriving on the Normandy beaches on D-Day. You see their faces and into their eyes as they steel themselves for what's ahead, obviously psyching themselves up as best they can to contain their fear and do what they've been asked to do. And then the crafts, they hit the beaches. The front ramps are lowered and you watch with disbelief as you see them being gunned down by the waves of machine gun fire that ravage them even before they get off the landing craft. Some make it further, but only because someone in front of them has shielded them from the bullets. But many of them also die or are so horribly injured that they cannot move. And as they push their way up the beach, which is by now littered with bodies, it's only through the sheer numbers that this armada successfully lands. And these brave men eventually gain the first toehold in occupied Europe. Even though there is no way you can create the true war, the horror of war on the screen, I still remember the reaction of people as we sat in the cinema and watched those 20 unrelenting minutes. It brought us a little closer to empathising with those who fought on D-Day and in other campaigns. The power of this film is not just that it horrifies you, but that through the way it depicts the flesh and blood reality of warfare, it draws you in. It emotionally engages you. It's shocking, you think. It's horrific. It leaves no room for denying or for not seeing the horrors of war. In short, this film successfully makes the experience of those men then present to you now in a way that you cannot but help be shocked by to the very core of your being. Those scenes of the film are in fact an act of remembrance. For you see, remembrance is about much more than just remembering, which can be all too cerebral, too historical, too much about looking back. 
Remembrance should be about the heart, about feeling, about being affected by the terrible things that have happened to others. And in that remembering, holding them before God, who also feels the pain of human suffering. God is for the suffering people, as the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, himself executed by the Nazis just before the end of the Second World War for his stand against Hitler. The trouble is, though, perhaps not not enough of us do feel this kind of pain at the witness of suffering in order to spur us on to making the world a better place because in many ways we've become immune to it as it's been beamed into our homes. There is only one thing worse than the fact that people are caught up in the horror of war and violence and that worst thing would be that such death, such experience should be forgotten. Today we remember not only those who fought and still fight but also those who are silent victims those whose lives are changed forever by the suddenness of events and those who simply disappear. How insulting to them if we were to be oblivious to these terrible experiences. How terrible to have this happen to you and to be forgotten. Because down that road lies more horror, more war, more Auschwitz, more Gallipolis, more Normandy beaches. We should remember However, it's not enough only to remember the sacrifice of those who gave their life for what they believed in, for in truth their sacrifice to, their, for their sacrifice to mean anything, it actually has to lead to change, personal and social change, that will create a world as close as possible to the kingdom of God. After all, it's what we prayed for earlier. It's what many of us pray for daily. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we read, The day of the Lord is coming, Paul wrote, when the heavens will open up and we will see Jesus Christ descending through the clouds to be with us once again forevermore. He will come to gather us up to be together, the living and the dead, and to be in God's kingdom. Until that time, take heart, have hope, and never stop encouraging one another. Paul doesn't take time in this letter to describe the kingdom of God in any detail. But in other places, it's spoken of a place of peace and justice. God's reign will be one in which there is no war and no suffering. It will be a place where everyone has enough to eat and and drink, and there will be roofs over people's heads. No one will be a slave to another. There will be no subservience, no subordination. No one will be oppressed or persecuted or marginalized. In an odd kind of way, I've come to believe that those young men who went to war were looking towards a kind of vision of the kingdom of God. For sure, God's kingdom is not one of warfare, bloodshed, and suffering. It is, however, one of self-sacrifice and one in which persecution and injustice cannot be tolerated. We all know that the kingdom will not be complete until Christ returns to finally defeat the forces of evil once and for all. But in struggling against the human forces of evil, all of the people who contributed to the war effort sought 
to offer a glimmer of light to many for whom the world must have seemed a very dark and bitter place. We need to remember them, their struggle, their sacrifice. Remembrance in the Christian tradition is never mere remembering, a recalling of the events of the past. Remembrance is always bringing the past into our present in a way that shapes our future. As a church, we share bread and wine round the Lord's table, and in doing so, we make him present in our lives to make and shape our future. As we look ahead to a future which is God's and bring our past into remembrance today, it should enable us to see just how much there is for us to do in the present, to see the high calling that God has for us, his people, as we confront the great and the pressing needs of our world. There is, Paul reminds us, no time to lose. We only ever have today in order to make a better tomorrow. So today, remember those who have fought and who have died and those who live in the legacy of freedom and survival. And let us personally resolve to be our swords, our anger into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Mm -hmm.